0: Pastor, you just bless the study of the Word of God once again. We're so thankful that we can be here, and and Lord, to gain from your Word, to be blessed, to be edified, and Lord, we want to make application. Uh, I see a a very godly man here that was a wonderful leader, and um, Lord, we can learn from his actions and his integrity and his godly character. And, Lord, we want to see that, and we want to see what pleases you. And, Father, we know that whenever you're working in our lives, that opposition comes to us. So, Lord, may we be encouraged tonight, knowing that you're going to see us through and you're going to be faithful to us. And um, we just want to please you, walk in the fear of the Lord, just as as Nehemiah did. And, Lord, just look to you for everything. So we want to be attentive. Uh, Bless all the children and the youth as they're having their lessons right now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So it's been a little while since we've been in our study of Nehemiah because uh, prayer week and then Easter. And uh, I just want to remind you where we're at in the book of Nehemiah. Of course, um, it was the children of of Judah that went off into captivity by the Babylonians. And what we see after the 70 years of captivity, as Cyrus became the first king of the Medo-Persians that took over the Babylonian Empire, we know that he made a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so that decree made, and we see in the book of Ezra, that Zerubbabel, as well as Joshua, the the religious leader, the, the high priest, would come back with a number of people to a city that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And what they did is they cleared the rubble off where Solomon's temple had been destroyed. They built the altar there, and then they would eventually rebuild the temple. It was a very simple building. It was nothing like Solomon's temple, as the old man would weep, and then the young man would rejoice because, once again, they were back in the land We know that later on that Ezra would come with a second wave of return with a smaller number of people, Ezra the scribe and Ezra who, who loved God's word and we're going to see that even here in the book of Nehemiah. Well, Nehemiah, he is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes is about almost a hundred years after the first uh, wave of return under Zerubbabel came. And Nehemiah gets word, as you recall, that the city was still uh, without any walls and, and they, the people were very much afraid and they weren't protected. And Nehemiah, who had never been to Jerusalem, wept over that. And he set himself to pray and fast for about four months. And Nehemiah, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, in Artaxerxes' 20th year of his reign, we know that it was Nehemiah, as he's serving the king, that the king noticed that he had a sad countenance and asked him, what's wrong, Nehemiah? What's, What's the matter? Something is up. And Nehemiah, he would pray, and then he would ask the king, can I go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem? And it was the king that at that time, in 445, B.C. That would give the decree for Nehemiah to go back. He would be appointed the governor of the region, as we see from the book of Nehemiah. And we know that Nehemiah would come back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So in chapter two, as he makes his return or comes to Jerusalem, he surveys this um, this city. He he looks it over. He knows that there's a lot of rubble, so much so that it was hard for his donkey that he was on to pass through. And then he would ask the people and tell the people, you know, what it was that he was doing. And he said, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And the people responded by saying, let us rise up and build and and let us set our hands to this good work. And I just wanna encourage all of us that whatever work that you're doing for the Lord, it it is work, but always remember that it is a good work. And there is no task that is unimportant or insignificant. It might be to the world standard, but not to God. Whether you are a parent raising your children in the ways of the Lord, whether you're ministering to people at your workplace, uh, whether you are are, uh, ministering in very practical ways, um, it is a good work that you've set your hands to, but here's the thing as they would begin to build the wall around Jerusalem, and, and we're seeing that, and we'll continue to see that, that there is a truth that comes out in the book of Nehemiah that comes out all throughout the scripture, and that is whenever God is working, we know that the enemy will rise up to oppose that work, and that's what we see here in the book of Nehemiah most definitely. And that opposition will come against you and me. It will come against the work, the good work that you and I have set our hearts to and our hands to in serving the Lord and in living for the Lord. So here is this opposition that we have began to see, and it comes in two ways. Um, as you minister for the Lord, as you minister to the Lord, and, and there is this opposition that comes externally outside forces that we're going to see in chapter six but also there is opposition, resistance that comes from within, and that's what we're going to see here in chapter 5. We're going to see in chapter 5 that there's the outcry of the people because um, there was um, a a problem from within. We read in chapter 5 verse 1, let's go ahead and begin to look at that, that there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. So with this great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren, it means that there was strife that was going on. They were not unified. There was a problem, and the work of God was being threatened, and they're no longer fighting the real enemy. So here was this strife, this problem that is rising up from within the the children of Israel, the children of Judah, within the brethren there. Here's the thing that you and I need to remember. That as the opposition comes from the outside forces, from the enemy, from the world against you and me, it it is a threat. It can be a real problem. But I'll tell you what I believe is the greater threat and the greater problem is when strife or when there's opposition or when there's division that comes from within. It comes from within the ministry, within a, a church, comes from within a family. That is the more difficult and more threatening, I believe, and we see that Paul the Apostle, he was constantly addressing that when he's writing to the churches in the New Testament. He was writing about how there is division. He was writing about uh, to the church of Corinth, as you know from 1 Corinthians, that uh, Paul, he would address a number of problems to that church. It was a church that was growing, it was a church that was very dynamic, but there was a lot of challenges and difficulties that the church was going through and problems within. And the first problem that he deals with is the problem of division. There was division that was leading to carnality, and Paul right away begins to address that in the church of Corinth. When he was writing to the church of philippi you might recall that he had a very special relationship with that church and as he's writing to them he writes to them about that let your conduct be worthy of the gospel in chapter one but then he would say that may you be of one mind of one spirit of one heart and let your conduct uh, be that of the gospel striving together for the gospel in other words as you continue to look at that epistle what had happened was there was tension that was within the church and there was tension particularly between two individuals that was causing division in the church so that was something that Paul really was sensitive about and really would address most definitely when he was writing those epistles in a new testament and here we see that this division that is coming that is a great threat to stop the work of God so that's something that we need to always be aware of in our families we need to be aware of it in in this church that what Satan will do is try to cause there to be strife and division that rises up from within because he knows that he can be very effective in stopping in what it is that God is doing with us and through us and it has happened unfortunately that there have been ministries and there have been churches that the work of God all of a sudden stops because there's this opposition that comes um, from within strife that comes from within so let's read what that strife was all about as we continue here in chapter 5 we read in verse 2 for there were those who said we are uh, our sons and our daughters are many and therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live and there were also some who Said We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. In verse 5, we continue reading, Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them for other men have our lands and vineyards. So the reason for the strife is that there was a great burden that was being put on the people. Now think about this. Ever since they had come back, you know, for almost 100 years, there have been great challenges that they have faced. They came back under Zerubbabel and Joshua to a city that was leveled it was in rubble it was very difficult it was a hard journey very dangerous those who had come in and 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 occupied the land there when the jews were off in the captivity were threatening them and they were always you know coming and and with these threats and intimidation and all this when they were building the temple when they were doing the work of the lord and that continues even today and what had happened at this time was that there was an increase of population as you read in verse 2 it says for we are many and there was a shortage of supplies there was a shortage of food there was famine and the people were losing their lands they were selling their homes and 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 giving up their homes to be able to buy food and they were being taxed very heavily by the king and what they had to do in verse 4 it says that they had to borrow money and it ended up being a great burden. And some of them were, because of this debt, um, they were not only losing their homes, not only losing their vineyards and their lands, because they were in such a debt, they couldn't pay those debts back. And we're going to see what the problem was with those debts as we continue on. Um, but we also know that some of them ended up becoming slaves. Now, here's the thing as we're going to see that there was those among their own brethren that were taking advantage of those who were in debt taking advantage of them. Let's go ahead and read in verse 6. And I became very angry when I heard their outcrying these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. So what was happening is those who were having to take out a loan, that those who were lending that money were, were, you know, guilty of usury, or that is very high interest rates, Um, not just high interest rates, but it it was immoral, it was unethical, and usually, usually has the definition of illegal. So the people, not only being taxed by the king, not only was there a shortage of food, they were losing their vineyards, they were losing their lands, they couldn't pay back any debt that they had borrowed because their own brethren that were making those loans were taking advantage of the people. And so Nehemiah hears about it, and he's upset about it. But here's the thing, also they were because um, they couldn't pay back their debts, their daughters, their children were going off into slavery. Now here's one of the things that you might recall before they went off into captivity. When you read those books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 2nd Chronicles, you know that the 10 northern tribes before they went off into captivity by the Assyrians and then the house of Judah as well uh, down south, that even when they were going through you know, good times economically... They were guilty, we know, of false worship, weren't they? And the prophets were coming along and always calling them back to true worship, back to worshiping the Lord. Give up your idols. The house of Israel was plunged, you know, right after, you know, Rehoboam, his reign, and and the nation first split. They were plunged into Baal worship and false worship of every kind. And the house of Judah did a little bit better, but we also know that they were involved in false worship. But also, as you read those uh, books, of first and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And also, as you read the books of the prophets, such as Isaiah, particularly in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, what was happening is that the people were taking advantage of each other. That is, that they were looking to see how they could rip somebody off, their brethren, somebody less... Fortunate somebody that they could easily, um, you know, uh, you know, rip off in in their dealings with them. So that was one of the problems that was taking place before they went off into captivity, and they go off into captivity and they come back and all of a sudden they're guilty of the same thing. They're guilty of taking advantage of their brethren here. So as we read in verses six and seven, Nehemiah's reaction to this is that he was angry. And I believe that Nehemiah here, that he has a righteous anger. There is a righteous anger, and he has it here. And we know that Jesus, that he would get angry, it was a righteous anger. You recall in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus is in Capernaum, And the religious leaders are trying to trap him, trying to trick him, seeing if he'll heal on the Sabbath day. So they set up this trap in the synagogue and Jesus comes into the synagogue and they're watching him, the religious leaders, to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath day. And there was a man that was in the back with a withered hand. And it says that Jesus told that man to stand up. He's going to heal him. And he looked at the religious leaders with anger. They didn't care about the people. They didn't care about this one individual that was hurting, that had a withered hand. And that was back in the days when there wasn't workmen's comp or there wasn't any kind of help in that way or entitlements of any kind. And, and yet these religious leaders only cared about their traditions and about their prestige and their standing. So Jesus had a righteous anger towards them. You recall when he came into Jerusalem and he overturned the you know, money changers tables and drove out the, the sacrifices and those who sold the sacrifices. And he rebuked the religious leaders who were ripping the people off again. And he said, that my father's house, which is a house of prayer, you've made it into a den of thieves. So Jesus had a righteous anger, and here Nehemiah, as he shows this anger, and it tells us that he is, uh, because of the Jewish leaders who were exploiting the situation at the expense of their own people, I want us to notice something here. Because Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to be angry, but do not sin, and don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And that's a very important verse because we can see things happen in this life. We can see the injustice, the unfairness, and we can get upset about it. And we can even get angry about it. We see how innocent people get taken advantage of or get hurt uh, by those who who come along and, and do those kinds of things, hurting somebody or taking advantage of them, and we get upset. But here's Nehemiah as he gets angry. Notice here in verse 7 that after serious thought, then he begins to react to the situation. You see, that's very wise for us to do. It is not wise for us to, to act when we're just overwhelmed with emotion, when we're very angry. And that's why we're told in the book of Ephesians, you know, be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And that's something that I tell people when I'm counseling them, maybe when it comes to marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, when it comes to relationships, that we can get angry with people, we can get upset with people, but don't sin. And don't react out of that anger. But what Nehemiah does here is he gives serious thought. He stops about it. He doesn't just go off, you know, overwhelmed and, and angry and screaming at everybody. Remember this, that the, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That you and I as Christians, and particularly for those of us who are leaders, we're told to be temperate. You know what that means? It means to be even keel. And we can't let the problem control us. We can't react in a way where we're out of control. And here Nehemiah shows godly character as he seriously thinks about the matter. And I think that Nehemiah, knowing that he is a man of prayer, took this manner to the Lord. And that's what you and I are to do. Whenever we get upset at a situation or upset at a person, to be sure that we take some serious thought to it, that we filter it through the Word of God, that we take it to the Lord uh, ourselves and present that to the Lord. But what happens so oftentimes is we just react out of that anger and out of that anger, we will say things that that we shouldn't be saying. We will try to hurt people right back. We'll be vengeful. Um, You know, we know that people make terrible, terrible decisions because of anger, don't they? That's where you see all kinds of violent acts that happen because, you know, I'm angry, and they react out of that anger, and they hurt somebody. Or, you know, road rage, you know, happens because of, of somebody who gets very angry on the road. And so we need to make sure that, that we have the fruit of the Spirit working through us of self-control. And don't let that anger control us. Don't allow the enemy to get a foothold in your life in destroying relationships and destroying, you know, your effectiveness to be able to minister to others because you're just angry and you react out of that anger. So here he has reason, you're exacting usury, you're charging this, this interest that is really illegal, because we know from Leviticus chapter 25, that it was told that when they gave a loan to their brethren, that the law stated that they were not to charge interest. But here they were, you know, this high interest rate, the people couldn't turn it, back the um or pay back the loans they were losing their lands um and it was a big problem and nehemiah hears about it and says listen why are we doing this to our brethren why are we doing this to each other this was a problem before we went into captivity and now we're coming back and committing the same problems and and we are committing the same sins and verse 8 and i said to them according to our ability we have redeemed our jewish brethren who were sold to the nations, now indeed will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silent and found nothing to say. Many of the people of Judah have been freed from you know the slavery of Babylon, and even though they were under the the yoke of the Medo-Persian empires, they came away from that captivity and their, their fathers and, and their grandfathers. And you're going to put them back into slavery, your own brethren? Especially since they can't pay off loans because of these high interest rates. Now, there is another side of the spectrum to this. And the Bible does talk about that, that the borrower needs to be careful not to be enslaved to the lender. We know that from the book of Proverbs. But this was a necessity. There was famine. There was a shortage of food. It was very difficult times. And instead of feel, you know, dealing fairly with their brethren, they were taking advantage of them as what was happening. And in verse 9, we see that Nehemiah says, Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? This is not good. We should be walking in the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to walk in the fear of the Lord? Because that's something that we see in the scriptures most definitely, but really isn't mentioned a whole lot in the church today. We as Christians are to walk in the fear of the Lord. To walk in the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is what Proverbs tells us. The beginning of wisdom, that is, is to walk in the fear of the Lord. And so walking in the fear of the Lord is a very wise thing for you and to me to do as christians and walking in the fear of the lord doesn't mean that we have this unhealthy you know terror of the lord that he's going to zap us you know in life and always angry at us It, it doesn't mean that that we're terrified of the lord walking in the fear of the lord means that we have a great respect and reverence for the lord That we understand that the Lord sees everything that we do. He knows everything that we think. He hears everything that we say in our conversations. He knows all of our dealings. And just being in constant awareness that the Lord sees, you know, our lives. And He knows every details of our lives. So I want to live my life in a way where I reverence the Lord. I revere Him. Remember that it was Nehemiah that said, God is great and awesome. He's a great and awesome God. He's the creator of the universe. He created you and me, and we should walk in the fear of the Lord that every area of our lives that we want to please Him with our lives, being aware that He hears, nothing is hidden from Him, nothing at all in our actions, our business dealings, in what we say. And one of the ways that is very easy, and I know that you probably have heard this before. Matter of fact, I heard one of the guys on Grace FM say this just the other day, but one of the ways that you can know where you're really at with the Lord is when nobody is around. When nobody is around, your friends, your family, whoever it might be, and when you're alone, what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're thinking, what it is that you desire, that's one way to know, you know, if you're walking in the fear of the Lord. That's one way to know if you're really close to the Lord, where you're at with the Lord. So we are to always be in that awareness that the Lord, He sees, He knows, and it is His desire for us to please Him in every area of our lives. And He's saying, don't you, you understand Don't you want to walk in the fear of the Lord? We need to do that. And not only, you know, in what we say, in our conduct, but in our business dealings. And not just thinking, how can it is that I can rip this person off? But rather, Lord, how can I do this in a way that is ethical, that is pleasing to you? So that's what Nehemiah is saying to them. Their witness to the other nations was at stake here. And they were to honor the Lord is similar to what uh, Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, when he was dealing with that church that had all kinds of problems, not only was there division, you know, as they were saying, well, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Paul, I'm of, of Barnabas, I'm of whoever it is, and all this division that was going on, but in chapter 6, what they were doing is they were suing each other, And Paul says, your witness is at stake here. How it is that you're dealing with each other. How it is that you're handling these situations. And so you don't want to ruin your witness. And none of us wants to do that. You see, we are a witness and not only the words that we speak, but how we live our lives. And how we deal with other people. So that's what Nehemiah is getting at. And in verse 10, he would say, I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. And restore them now, uh, restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So do what is right. And stop this usury, stop taking advantage of the people, restore their lands. And you see, when we're walking in the ways of the Lord and in the fear of the Lord, we're going to do what is right in the sight of the Lord, aren't we? It reminds me of in Luke chapter 19, Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. And when he's in Jericho, there is Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector, you know, Zacchaeus. Remember the, the song that perhaps some of you sang when you were in children's you know, ministry or Sunday school years ago that Zacchaeus, a wee little man, he's up in a tree and he wants to see Jesus and Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house today. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And you see, tax collectors were hated. One of Jesus' disciples was a tax collector. We know that. It was Levi Jesus would change his name to Matthew so Matthew being a tax collector was probably one of the most least likely guys to be a disciple of Jesus Zacchaeus he was a tax collector and the people of Israel hated the tax collectors because even though the Romans would use the Jews to collect taxes they would take advantage of the people and the way that they did it 2000 years ago is Rome would give them a quota they would have tax stations just as it was Matthew that was there at Capernaum, and there at Capernaum, you can go, and if you go with us to Israel, what we will do is we will show you an ancient road, part of it, that's 2,000 years old, old. That was a major roadway that people would pass through. And so a lot of people passing through there, and Matthew had his tax-collecting table somewhere there at the gate of, of Capernaum, there along close to that road, and he would tax the people. And he had a certain quota that nobody knew about, and anything that he raised above that quota for Rome, he got to keep himself. So tax collectors usually were very wealthy. And they were wealthy because they took advantage of the people. They collected more taxes than what their quotas was. And they were able to use the Roman soldiers to kind of, you know, shake somebody down. Hey, you need to pay more taxes. You, you need to give up more money. And so the people didn't like it, especially if they were Jewish, because you're being a traitor and you are working for Rome, who's got us in, you know, occupation. We're under the Rome yoke. So here's Zacchaeus up in a tree. And Jesus points to him and says, I'm coming over to your house today, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus got saved. And he gave his heart to the Lord. And he would repent. And it says there in Luke chapter 19 that he restored four times. If I've done anything wrong, he he would say, I want to restore four times. That was according to the law, according to the book of Exodus chapter 22. And he no longer was going to rip the people off. We know in Luke chapter 3 that when John the Baptist was there at the river and he was baptizing people, that the tax collectors came along and said, what must we do? And John the Baptist said, don't collect any more than what is appointed to you. As I've mentioned to you, not only do we speak the gospel, you see, we live the gospel. And here's the thing. This is very important, and I know that you know this but we need to be reminded of it always don't we that if we are once that we're living an inconsistent life in the things that we say there's compromise that is not pleasing to the lord that is worldly that is carnal in how we speak in our behavior in our conduct in our business dealings it affects our witness to others and you can say that you're a christian but it's a terrible witness when we turn around then in our actions, contradict what it is that we're saying, that, oh, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, and yet we will act like the world, or we will talk like the world. And not only do we, you know, do we, you know, talk to and tell people about the gospel, we live the gospel. We are to live it. And I believe that is even a stronger witness at times. Because usually people aren't going to always be receptive to you until they start to trust you. They start to, to watch you and see that there's something different about you. Yes, there are times where we can go and share somebody that we don't know the gospel and they'll receive it, and it's a wonderful work of God. I'm not saying that that never happens, but usually you know how it works. You know how it works. That that person at work or that neighbor or that family member as they watch you and they see that you have true freedom and liberty and joy and peace in Christ and you're living for him. They look at that and see that you have the wisdom of God and that truly you're a new creation in Christ by your behavior and by the way you live your life. That is a powerful witness to them and that's what opens up the door usually for us to be able then to verbalize the gospel to them. So here was Nehemiah reminding them, hey, do what's right, live the gospel. It grieves me so much to see church leaders, evangelists or pastors that are ripping the people off, that are taking advantage of them by teaching them a a false doctrine, a prosperity gospel, you know, telling them to plant their seed faith and you'll get a hundredfold and, and seeing them become very wealthy and prosperous because of that, living in exuberant, you know, wealthy homes, you know, just uh, in luxury and, and boasting about it, not teaching the gospel, not teaching the word of God, but just always seeing what it is that they can get, always fleecing the people rather than feeding the people. And it grieves me when I see that. And there's a whole bunch of that that goes on, particularly as you watch Christian TV. I'm not saying all of Christian TV is that, but a lot of it is. It grieves me when there are Christians that don't deal honestly and with godly integrity in their lives and their business dealings. That won't pay their bills and have no intention. That won't pay money to others that they owe that won't pay for the work that was done and it grieves me when I hear that we need to do our business dealings and deal with others in a way that pleases the Lord in honesty and in godly integrity and I pray that that's all of us being an incredible witness to others you know of, of that we are different in the world and that we don't take advantage of others. So here is um, these guys that are told, as he says, listen, you know what? Stop this. Stop what you're doing. Um, Stop this usury. And if there's anything in our lives, any carnality or sin in the way that we deal with others that is not right, taking advantage of others, even in the smallest of compromise, we need to Stop. And walk in the fear of the Lord. And he goes on to say, as we read in verse 10, I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Let us stop this usury, restore them even their lands, as we just mentioned. And then in verse 12, so they said, We will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests. And required an oath from them. They they would do according to the promise. And then I shook out the fold of my garment. Verse 13. And I said. So may God shake out each man from his house. And from his property. Who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen. And praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. And so they repent. And repentance means action. It's not just talking about it not just saying, okay, I'll do what's right, but actually they said, okay, we're going to return the property, we're going to do what's right, and they take an oath here, they make a promise, and they say amen to it. You know what's wonderful about being a Christian is we get to do what's right. One of the things that we're going to see on Sunday is we've been talking in the book of Galatians, and many of you have said how you've been touched by the book of Galatians, that We are justified by faith in jesus christ alone that the law doesn't justify us and yet what we're going to see in chapters five and six is what does it mean to live in that grace it doesn't mean that we just get to do whatever it is that we want to do in pleasing our flesh it means that we are free we are free from the law we are free from you know being under the law and that we are free to live not for ourselves not to to please ourselves not to do what we think is right in our own eyes. We're free to live for the Lord. So that's what we're going to look at. Living in grace means that I get to do what is right. And isn't it wonderful as a Christian that you and I, that we get to show brotherly love to others, to each other, which is a powerful thing. And to do what is right you know, in life. And treating others fairly. And dealing with them. And, and how we talk with others—it's a privilege and it's a blessing that you and I get to have as we grow in God's word and grow in His wisdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't have to to try to manipulate and and hurt people and and rip people off. I mean, who wants to live a life like that? There are people that want to do that, but never, never as a Christian, we get to do what is right in the sight of the Lord, and we get to do that because we love the Lord and then he's put that love in us for others and so here they repent and take this oath and there was accountability that was here In verse 14 moreover from the time that i was appointed to be their governor in the land of judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of king artaxerxes 12 years neither i nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekel of silver yes even their servants bore rule over the people but i did not do so because of the fear of god and indeed i also count it uh, continued that is the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table there were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox, six choice sheep. Also fowl was prepared for me, and once every 10 days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provision, because the bondage was very heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah, he was the governor for these 12 years, and he had this provision, and he said, I'm not going to take the provision. I mean, an ox a day and, and six choice sheep. And Nehemiah and the leadership here show such a great example to the people. For those 12 years, he said, I'm not going to take advantage of the people because even though he was the governor, even though there was that provision that he could have legally taken, he said, I'm not going to do it because it's too much of a burden on the people. And I'm going to continue to help build the wall, do the work of the ministry, and I am going to give up that provision because I don't want to be a burden to the people. And he led by example. And then he says, Lord, remember me for the good that I've done to this people. And the Lord I'm sure, you know, is rewarding Nehemiah greatly in eternity because of a man of great integrity and godly character and had a love for the people. He did what was right because he, as he says, walked in the fear of the Lord. It reminds me so much of Paul the Apostle. You know, Paul the Apostle, that is, he would write to the churches, I wasn't a burden to you he would say to the Corinthian church that as he would go there and for a year and a half he was making tents and, and he didn't take from the people even though he had the right to receive support from them and he writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that you know don't muzzle the ox that treads the grain But he chose not to do that because he wanted to make sure that the gospel went out. He wanted to make sure he wasn't a burden to the people. And then in his second letter to them, you recall that there were those who saw themselves as super apostles, as most eminent apostles, that were being a burden to the people. And Paul said, you know how when we first came to you, that we ministered the gospel in simplicity. We weren't here to rule over you, but to be helpers of your joy. We didn't take from you. He was a very godly man. That his priority was making sure that he was a witness and then he would say, follow my example to those that he would raise up in the ministry, to Timothy and Titus and some of the others. That they learned to be servants and learn to give. And that's my heart. Lord, please help me never to be a burden to you guys. And to be a servant. And to serve with Humility. Because I see it as a great privilege and honor to pastor this church and to stand behind this pulpit on Wednesdays and Sundays and to give the word of God and to be able to give the gospel. And I never want to be a burden or take advantage of the people. That if it ever gets to the point where this church can't support me, then I go out and get a job then I support my family by other means. Now, the church financially is sound, and I'm very blessed that, you know, that I'm able to be here full-time as you give and your tithes and offerings, but I never want to be a burden. Sometimes I'll get guys that will say, well, I'm pastoring this church, and there's not enough you know, uh, money to really support my family, and what is it that I do? And they're upset, and they're mad, and I tell them, do what Paul did, go make tents. And I have great respect for pastors that I know and have relationship with that they're bivocational. That they work and they pastor. And they work because the church can't afford to pay them a full salary or any salary at all. But they know the calling in their life. That they're the pastor, that small group of people and love them and feed them. And they see it as a privilege. And you know what? I see it as just a wonderful wonderful thing i got great respect for guys who are faithful to their ministries that do that don't ever look down on anybody who's pastoring a church and he has to go and work and make tents and think well that church is just small they're insignificant what he is doing is honorable before the lord and i appreciate guys that are willing to do that rather than to manipulate and try to be a burden to the people I want to be able to bless you and to be a helper of your joy. And I know that God, that in eternity, that he'll reward us as we do what is right, as we do business dealings, what we do is right in dealing with other people, that we are ones that we are controlled by the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit coming out, self-control, gentleness, kindness, love, long-suffering, and knowing that the Lord sees us. And Lord, I want to walk in the fear of the Lord, blessing people and just honoring you in every area of my life and how I conduct myself with others. So that's the wonderful lessons that we learned from Nehemiah in chapter 6. There's a lot in chapter 6. I was actually hoping to get to chapter 6 tonight. But you know what? We're going to have to pick it up next time. All right? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, Lord, just as we look at this chapter and know that um, strife can come within, within our families, within a ministry, within a church. And, Lord, what my prayer is is that we would realize that you desire for us to be unified, striving together, for the gospel with one mind one heart one spirit one accord and the way that we do that as paul went on to write is that we look out not only for our own interest but for the interests of others and esteem others better than ourselves doing nothing through selfish ambition or conceit so lord may we be ones that we take heed to what the command of scripture is We don't want to be selfish ambitions. We don't want to be full of conceit. We don't want to take advantage of others. We don't want to rule over others, to tear them down, but, Lord, to be a blessing and to walk in the fear of the Lord and do what is right. And, Father, I pray that we would be yielded to you, that not only would we speak about the gospel as we believe it, but also live the gospel, that, Lord, it would be evident in our lives, in how we conduct ourselves, Lord, our speech, our behavior, in our dealings with others, how we do business, Lord, how we work in our workplaces, Lord, um, that we would be men and women of godly character and integrity and godly honesty, that people would see us and see that we're just not out to take advantage or out for ourselves but we would be giving and that we would be loving. And Lord, that we would be honest to others and people would see the reality of Jesus Christ in us. So Father, I thank you for this very important chapter that we've gone over. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would be a light to others as we live the way that you desire for us to live, walking in the fear of the Lord, And then given that gospel message that Jesus Christ died for you, just as Zacchaeus, a sinner, as people were saying, he's a sinner. Why are you going over to his house, Jesus? And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. Use this to bring the gospel to others. That Jesus died for sinners. And he took their sins upon himself and he made atonement for sin, and he was put into a grave, and he rose again. That life comes through him. Eternal life, forgiveness through him alone, and no one else. That people know that they're, they can become a new creation in Christ, and live in that newness of life. And Father, help us to be a witness to others. I pray if this is a witness right now, to anybody that's here or watching on live stream, that you would turn to the gospel. Turn to Jesus Christ for salvation tonight and pray in your heart. Ask for him to come and forgive you. Mean it in your heart. Confess that you're a sinner, Jesus, that I am a sinner, and I believe that you're the son of God who died for me. I ask that you would forgive me, and I believe that you're alive because you came forth from that tomb knocking on the door of my heart, and I now open up my heart to you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Your incredible love, thank you, demonstrated to me. And thank you for hearing my prayer and saving me. And Father, I pray that we would be bold and be able to share the greatest news, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Lord, I thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts here tonight. And Lord, take everyone home safely. Lord, help us to have hearts of thanksgiving and gratitude for your incredible blessings in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.